Open your Bibles, if you would, please, to Luke chapter 15. We find ourselves here again as we're making our way through these parables that Jesus is telling to a group, two groups of individuals, those that would be represented by the sinners and tax collectors, and then this other group who are the scribes and the Pharisees, two groups on opposite ends of the spectrum as as far as they were concerned, but as far as Jesus is, is concerned, he's speaking to the same, really the same target audience. Those who are desperate or should recognize their desperation for salvation and forgiveness from God in coming to him in a heart of repentance. If you're using the Pew Bible, I would encourage you to turn there. It's on page 874 as we find ourselves again in Luke chapter 15. Each of these parables that Jesus is telling, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and now the parable of the lost son have one goal, one objective, one overarching theme. Do you remember? What is that theme? We've talked about it now for the last three weeks, and essentially, that theme is to celebrate heaven's joy. One sinner who repents produces more joy in heaven, more than one or 99 righteous who need no repentance. The heart of God for sinners who come to terms with their need of a savior. The goal was to paint these sinners in such a way that that as far as the crowd was concerned, they would come to the conclusion that they are, that this young son, this young man in this story of the prodigal has gone too far. In a sense that he is irredeemable, that he is beyond hope, that he has committed so many sins, he he has departed so far from the standard that there is no opportunity for recovery. There's no hope for his life of coming back. At least that's the kind of sinner that Jesus is trying to paint in this young son. So that he had stooped so low that he was virtually irredeemable. He had given up his identity. He had turned from his family. He had, he had distanced himself from the worship of God in Jerusalem. He had essentially become like a Gentile. And as we're going to see in our story, he has descended now to a point of being worse than a Gentile and now actually being jealous of the unclean pigs that he has been given to tend. Jesus' strategy was to paint the worst of the worst to help identify this portrait of a rebel that that everyone in the crowd would say, if God can save this young man, God can save me. Really, that's the goal of this story for all of us. The goal of this story is to help us understand that, that no sin that we could commit is beyond forgiving. That Jesus is able in his power to overcome every power of every sin and to draw us to himself. His blood covers everything. Nothing can stand in his way. No power in heaven, no power on the earth can separate us from the love of God. As long as we come to terms, as this young man does, with the gravity of his sin and then begins to move his way back to his father 
recognizing the significance of his rebellion, seeing the benevolence and the grace of his father and moving his way back with a heart that is gripped with his sin and ready to accept the consequences. Perhaps the most dramatic story of conversion that that I'm aware of in the scripture, and maybe you can think of others, is the, the conversion of Saul, who would then become the Apostle Paul. We find his story in the book of Acts in chapter 9, his conversion. Saul would, would be like the Pharisees in this crowd. Their religious blindness of assuming that they were essentially the benchmarks of everything that God loved and applauded. That, that their life in their own minds was exemplary. That they had obtained some level of satisfaction from God and approval from God because of their, of their life. Paul will call himself a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He will call himself concerning the law of Pharisee. Concerning zeal, a persecutor of the church. Paul was a man of deep conviction, as you know. Paul was a man who, who was driven by a, a love, at least he thought a, a love for God and, and a zeal for making sure that the true religion, at least in his mind, this religion of Judaism was, was maintained and, 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 kept pu- and kept pure. And so he persecuted the church. He believed that that they were essentially coming in the way of this Old Testament law that God had put in place. In his zeal, Paul describes himself as ravaging the church, entering the house after house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. And we find in Acts chapter 9 that Saul will go to the high priest He'll ask for letters. He'll, he'll ask for permission to hunt down Christians in Damascus, which was a city about 200 miles away from Jerusalem, and that he could lock those Christians up and purify this Judaism that he thought was a defense of God. On his way, a light shines to him from heaven. You remember, a voice from heaven says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? A blindness covers his eyes. He's blinded and his need, he needs to be led to Damascus by those who are traveling with him and he waits there for three days from, from a voice from God and this vision from God that he receives of Ananias who will come and help to heal his blindness. In verses 17 to 18, we find the account of Ananias coming. It says, so Ananias departed and entered the house And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he arose and was baptized. The symbol of blindness, not only in a physical way, but also a spiritual way that needed to be that needed to be healed by God as, as, as God was helping to, to, to draw Paul's heart to him, help him to, to be aware of all of the things in the Old Testament that pointed to the Savior in being able to see them faithfully and accurately. He needed his spiritual blindness to be removed. He needed God to, to point him to himself. It was a divine work that only God could accomplish in his life. And Paul will come to his senses he will essentially re- regain his sight, as it were, and, and, to, and to finally see in a spiritual way. 
Saul described this event in the latter days of his life in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 15. This Pharisee of the Pharisee describes himself this way, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full repentance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. This Hebrew of the Hebrews, this Pharisee, recognizes himself as the prodigal, recognizes himself as the rebel, recognizes himself as the one who is the chief among sinners, the one who is the least deserving of God's grace. He has come to the point of recognizing that he is the prodigal, as it were. Paul came to understand the incomprehensible love of Christ in overcoming the rebellion of his heart. And for all of us in this room, if we are ever to experience the measure of Christ's love for us, we must come to terms with this truth. We must see ourselves in this light. We must come to a place of recognizing that we are the chief of sinners. We are this rebel son who wishes his father dead, who seeks to please himself in spending himself on the pleasures of life. And that's what Jesus is describing in this parable as we come. Jesus is describing this sinner, all of us in this room, who are desperate to know a savior. We'll see this road of restoration. We've begun to recognize the description, this portrait of a rebel in verses 11 to 14, and I'll read that in a moment. But this morning, we're gonna begin to see this, this work of God on the heart of this young man in helping him come to his senses in drawing him to repentance. Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 14, just to remind ourselves of where we are in this story. It says this. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. Last week, as we saw this portrait of a rebel, we, we came to understand kind of the, the cultural nuances that are, that are wrapped up in this story and how every single detail of this story points to another shock value of how this younger son rebelled against his father, against Israel, and against the Lord. The son, in asking for his inheritance early, is essentially wishing his father were dead. I wish you were out of the way. I wish I could have what's coming to me and be on my merry way. But you are in the way. I wish you were dead. Give me what's mine so I can finally get on with my life. The father graciously divides his livelihood. And we saw that livelihood is the word bios. It's the word life. And it was a picture of the life that was laid down for us. Jesus in laying down his life. This father, representative of Christ, laying down his livelihood, dispensing it for his son, turning it over, 
And then, so what does the son do? The son accumulates this wealth. He, he comes to a place of, of making quick cash. He's on his way. He moves to a far country. At least there, he's going to be able to do what he wants to do without any accountability. He turns his back on his family, on his heritage. He turns his back on God and all the promises that were built into being part of the covenant communion community so he can spend himself on the pleasures that are built into his heart. This squandering of his money, it's described here as uh, the, the Greek word for winnowing. It's as if he threw his cash up into the air just like the chaff is thrown up into the air and the wind blew it all away. Word got back to the family. We find in verse 30, the older, the older son, his criticism of his brother is that he squandered his money on prostitutes. The immorality, the reckless living, the impulsiveness of this young man in running after his pleasures. And then it was all gone. He spent it all. He spent everything, and then injury, insult to injury, a severe famine arose in that country. He began to be in need. The Pharisees and the scribes in the crowd would have seen this as, as divine justice. It was known that famines were a result of God's condemnation and judgment on a rebel people. And so this young man, experiencing this famine, would have, would have understood the divine hand of God on his life as he has run away from all of the things that he knew to be proper and correct. This young man has demonstrated the futility of his heart, his, his wickedness in running after his own pleasures. Now we come to the second phase of the story where now what was bad becomes worse and God and the situation now begins to turn this young man's heart back to his father. Notice in verse 15. So when he, so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough uh, bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will rise and go to my father. I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. We begin to see his desperation, his desperate attempt to save himself. His desperate attempt to save himself. So we find in verse 15. He went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. That is our nature, is it not? It is our nature when we fall into trouble, when we begin to face the consequences of the decisions that we've made, when we go against the, the, the wisdom that has been built into the fabric of our, of our family, when we begin to, to go against the, the things in the word of God that we know are to be true and, and our life reflects rebellion against those things, we begin to face those consequences, what is our natural response? It is to fix it for ourselves, to take matters into our own hands. And so here in verse 15, we find his plan for survival. 
His money is gone. His friends are gone. His family is a distant memory. He has turned his back on God. There's certainly no help there. And now the family has come and he is desperate. So he begins to concoct this scheme. How can I I pull myself up by my own bootstraps, as it were? How can I weather this storm? I can fix this, we can maybe hear him say. Let me just think positively about this. I can turn this thing around. It seems bad now, but I, I can make it. I can make it if I just hang on a little longer. This word, he hired himself, helps us understand that the desperation of his situation. In the New King James, it actually says he joined himself. Not just hired himself, but he joined himself. It's the word, the Greek word kalao. It's the word that literally means to glue, to stick, to cling to. You come to understand that that he and this citizen really had no real relationship and this citizen had no real interest in this young man but, but in his desperation you can kind of get the picture of him putting his arms around the, the legs of this citizen demanding or pleading with him please have mercy give me something to do he's clinging to him didn't really give this citizen an option essentially threw himself at him clinging to him I'll do whatever it takes It was an act of desperation. Nothing in the text suggests that this citizen had an ounce of interest in helping this young man, but simply sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. As the story continues, we we come to find out that, that no one will help him, and that would include this citizen. He was essentially on his own. Sending him to feed the pigs is an interesting a development in the story for a couple of reasons. The truth is that pigs need very little attention. Pigs can pretty much take care of themselves. They can find the places to eat. They can, they can stay together. They're, they're not like sheep in getting lost. As a matter of fact, unlike um, sheep uh, and goats, they don't need a shepherd as it were. They don't need someone to spend time with them and in leading them and directing them as a sheep or a goat would. They just need someone to maybe help them find the new place to find food. And once they lead them to that place, then the the pigs are pretty much on their own. This was a way, really, of the citizen getting rid of this young man and essentially removing this burden from his shoulders, kind of getting him, in, him out of his hair. It was a kind of a low-risk kind of job to give to him. It seems there was little or no compensation for the prodigal. Okay, whatever, just take care of my pigs. They can pretty much take care of themselves, but at least you're gonna be out of my hair, out of my way, out in the wilderness. You won't be clinging to me anymore. But as you know, may know, pigs in first century Israel, and for a person who is following the the Old Testament law, pigs were considered unclean. And so this would have been the, the, the epitome of a job among those who were Jews that would have been the lowest of the low, would have demonstrated his ultimate depravity. 
It would have, it would, it would have suggested that he was always ceremonially unclean in being around these pigs. In the minds of the Pharisees, it would have been better for him to have died than to have resorted to this kind of existence. For the prodigal son, born under the law of Moses, pigs were considered ceremonially unclean, and so this young man in spending time and even hurting these pigs would have been perpetually unclean by moral and religious standards. So the nature of this job alone in the minds of those who were in the crowd would have automatically labeled this young man as being virtually irredeemable, permanently an outcast of Israel, beyond hope. Jesus is painting the, 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 the depth at which this young man will go to completely abandon all semblance of Judaism. In verse 16, we come to his place of misery. All of these compounded decisions are leading now to his misery. We find in verse 16, he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. The prodigal was literally starving to death. He could not find anything to satisfy his hunger. If it wasn't bad enough to move to a Gentile territory, but to stoop to that level of depravity becoming like a despised Gentile, but, but now to be in a position, not of just being like a Gentile, but, but of being worse than the pigs, of being jealous of the fact that the pigs were cared for. But here he was in need. Their needs are met. His needs were not. They were thriving. He was starving. This Greek word translated pods is keration. It's the word for carob pods. These were the long string bean kind of shaped um, fruit, seed pods. Maybe you've seen these uh, around as you're walking through the woods. They grow on shrubby um, tree-like bushes. The bean pods are hard. The pod shells are tough and leathery. It was barely nutritious for the pigs, and it was inedible, virtually inedible for, for this young man. Only if it's processed can it be really used. But without processing, it was inedible for him and even harmful for him. This was all that he had. This was yet another detail in the story that helped the Pharisees, or at least brought the Pharisees and, and probably the, 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 the tax collectors and sinners to, to consider the fact that he had, he had sunk to the lowest level possible. He'd come to a place, he'd come to a place of longing to share food even with the pigs. And then we find this phrase, no one gave him anything. This word no one is udes. It's emphatic in the text. He was an outsider in every way. He did not share citizenship. He wasn't there long enough to establish friendship. He didn't have any business partnerships, no shared community. He was a reject, an outcast in every way. And there was no incentive for a godless society of Gentiles to extend any kind of mercy or pity to him. Jesus told this parable so that every kind of defilement and disgrace would be embodied in this young man. He was so covered with reproach that everyone in the audience would assume that he was without hope. 
But here's the shocking reality. The shocking reality is what we find in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. That what might have been true or what may have been true about the prodigal is also true about every one of us. It says this, And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In a sense, from a, from a law um, perspective, we are just like this prodigal, virtually without hope. And as the Apostle Paul will say in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and following, that we as Gentiles have been cut off from the commonwealth of Israel without hope and without God in the world. That is us. Every single one of us in this room, virtually without hope, except for Christ. Romans 8, verses 7 and 8, talks about the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Outside of a saving relationship with God, we find from the prophet Isaiah, even our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. Even on our best day, we cannot please God. We are all prodigal sons and daughters. We need to see ourselves as rebels from God, hostile towards him, In verse 17, we come to his point of clarity. All of this compounded difficulty, all of the hardship that he has been experiencing is now bringing him to this place of clarity in his mind. Notice verse 17, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? Fortunately for the prodigal, he came to his senses which suggests that up to this point, he has been living in a, kind of in a, beside himself, he was kind of living this insanity, but, but now he comes to a place of clarity. He's finally in a spot of solitude. He's finally forced to think about his decisions. He's finally at a place of recognizing where he is in relationship to where he once was. He had been out of his mind, but now there is some clarity and some sanity that is beginning to, de- to, to develop. Every lie he'd believed was now exposed. All that remained was the deep, buried truth. My father is a generous man. Working for him as a slave would be a blessing compared with what I'm experiencing now. But the question that everyone in the crowd would have been asking, but it is too late, right? It must be too late for this prodigal. He's rejected his father. He's turned his back on his identity. He's exhausted his inheritance. He's aligned himself with the Gentiles, with the heathen. He's engaged in these socially reprehensible behavior. It must be too late for him, right? His life must be over. And that's because those living in first century, especially the scribes and Pharisees, had no category for grace. 
In their minds, those who were devoted to the law were the only ones who could experience the favor of God. Only those whose life from day to day through the course of their entire life could ever enjoy the blessing of God on their life. There was no category for grace, so they assumed the prodigal too far gone, his best hope was to come clawing back to his father and to devote himself to this life of slavery to his father. But now this story begins to turn. We find in verse 17, he's beginning to see things clearly for the first time. Notice verses 17 to 20, or 17 and 18, it says, when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Now this point of clarity is helping him to have an honest evaluation. Helping him to look at his life. Helping him to look at his father. Helping him to look at his situation in the honesty of what's really happening. He looks at his situation and he recognizes the ugliness of where he is. He looks at his father and he sees the the character of his father's generosity coming through. This is the first clue, by the way, of a change that's happening in his life. Because as the story began, you saw the hostility of the son against his father. You saw how, how, uh, how critical he was, how ungrateful he was from, about, about his father. But now he's beginning to see his father's generosity. He's beginning to see that his father is tender and compassionate towards his servants. There's an honest admission of his own desperation. Notice he says, I perish here with hunger. He was starving to death. He was at the end of himself. He had almost expended his, his, his life there on the run. This is what true repentance requires. It requires a hard look at our situation. As Jesus will say in Matthew chapter 9, verse 12, he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. The only way that this young prodigal was ever going to experience and enjoy the benefits of healing, spiritual healing on his life was to come to terms with his own spiritual depravity. You see this honest look at himself in verse 18. I have sinned against heaven and before you. This Greek expression literally means to sin into heaven, not just against heaven, as though his sins continued to pile up until they reached heaven itself. But as he's assessing his situation, and as he's coming to a place of recognizing where he is, he, he, he comes to, to realize that, that there are no special privileges that he is deserving of. He can make no demands. He wasn't able to negotiate his terms. He needed to come humbly. He needed to come as one who recognized the gravity of his rebellion. I wonder what often stands in the way of us making an honest assessment of our own lives, of seeing ourselves as this prodigal was able to see himself. What stands in the way of coming to terms with an honest evaluation of your life? Maybe it's rationalization. 
Maybe in your rationalization you say, well, it wasn't that bad. After all, look at all the wicked people around me. I compare myself with them. I'm doing pretty good. Or maybe it's pride and unwillingness to take responsibility for actions. Uh, an unwillingness for us to, to really come to terms with the, the consequences of what those actions have produced. An unwillingness to, to come clean, as it were, and to confess it to those we've offended. Sometimes it's so much easier for us to live with the consequences and just kind of let it run its course than to actually go to the person that we've offended and try to make it right. Pride often stands in the way. Maybe it's blame. Well, I am the way I am because of my upbringing. I am the way I am because of of the, the people who have been in my life. I am the way I am just because of my own circumstances. We tend to blame those around us instead of taking responsibility. Maybe this sense of victimization. We say, well, I'm a victim of my circumstances. Because others have sinned against me, then I had no choice but to sin against them in return. I was forced to do this. Perhaps it's ignorance. Well, it wasn't that bad after all. I, 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 I did it as in ignorance, as Paul will say, I did this in ignorance and unbelief. And so because I didn't know it was wrong, then it can't be really that bad. Maybe we're led to despair. Despair that would say, well, this was bad, and I'm ruined. There's no hope for me. There's no, there's, there's no hope of, of ever returning. I may as well just hang it up. I'm too far gone. I've sinned too greatly. It's over for me. But all of those potential scenarios were not true about this prodigal. He came to his senses and he was willing to do the right thing. We find in verse 19 his humble expectation. His humble expectation. Notice again in verse 18, I will arise and go to my father. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. His honest assessment of his situation leads him to humility. And as we know from James and also 1 Peter, that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humility is where repentance is is birthed. This honest evaluation of who we are and and what we really deserve will help to lead us to the, the proper kinds of humility that finally lead to God's forgiveness of us. This Greek word translated higher servant refers to a day laborer. It was the lowest of the low in that society, even lower than a slave, because at least slaves had a place to stay. Their needs were met. They had work to do from day to day. They had clothes, they had sandals, they had, they had uh, uh, money to spend. But those who were hired servants, those who were day laborers, would depend every day on the work that was available. And there wasn't always a guarantee that work would be there. They were often homeless and unskilled, and they did some of the most menial tasks of the day. You remember the the parable 
of the, of the landowner going out and hiring this, those laborers. He comes first at six o'clock and then at nine o'clock and then at 12 o'clock and then at three o'clock and then at five o'clock, right? And, and he pays them for their day's labor. This is what we're talking about. Those day laborers. I'm not sure if you've ever seen this kind of thing, but when we lived in California, uh, there was a, a group of men who would often wait at, uh, at, at home, home Depot. So as people were buying their supplies and getting their stuff and gonna go work on their house, these men would be there and they had certain skills and they could especially lift things or they could do drywall or paint and you could hire them for the day on the spot to help you do your work. That's the kind of thing we're talking about. Prodigal remembered the compassionate, generous heart of his father. He says in verse 17, even these hired servants have more than enough bread. Maybe my dad will hire me as a day laborer. At least I'll be able to survive. He had never truly appreciated his father's love before. But now this taste of reality is bringing this picture home. And it leads to what we find in verse 20, this hopeful journey. Notice in verse 20, and he arose and came to his father. He arose and came to his father. Things, are, things now are now happening in reverse where at the beginning of this story, he's picking up everything and he's leaving home. Now he has nothing left and he's making his journey back. Certainly, this journey home was a thousand times harder than his journey away from home as he's depleted of energy, depleted of funds, friendless, making his way back to his father. But he comes to a place of recognizing that being grieved over his sin, having shame about his sin was not enough, that true repentance would seek to restore relationship. This son has come to a place of recognizing that he needs this genuine repentance that pursues relationship and restoring what was broken with his father. One clear indication of the prodigal's repentance was this genuine interest in following through on this commitment. We recognize as he needs to rise and go to his father and so he does that very thing. He puts this plan to work As the father will describe what happens to the son. He says, my son which was dead is now alive. He was lost and now he's found. The word for found is in the passive sense which means that that the son did not find himself. The work of God on his life in drawing him in repentance back to the father and restoring that relationship was outside of him. He was just a passive player. We know a number, I'm sure you know people in your life who have come to the end of themselves. They've hit rock bottom as it were. The, they've expended their, their, their finances. They've, they've blown their inheritance as it were on the kind of fleshly living that this world has to offer but they have not yet come to faith in Christ and yet we see this young man who is making a turn, coming to his senses, it's, a, it's an indication of this 
work of God on his life in drawing him back to his father. We're going to see next week the response of the father to his son. We're going to see this overwhelming reception that was so unexpected that everyone in the crowd who was listening to these parables would have taken their breath away. It's a picture of our Savior who is powerful to save. As we look at our own lives this morning, as we close out our time this morning, it's important to to do what the prodigal did. It's important for each of us to take a hard look at our life and, and make an honest evaluation. Who am I really? What does the Bible say about my life? Paul writes a commentary about every one of us from Romans chapter three, verses 10 to 18. He says this, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The the venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And you say, that's not me. That can't be me. I'm not those things. And yet, this is the commentary that's written over our life. That we need to come to terms with what God says about who we are before we can ever enjoy the benefits of God's forgiveness, of God's grace. And and the measure of God's grace will fill up our lives as we come to terms with, with who we are as being undeserving, unworthy of his kindness to us. Titus chapter Three verses four to seven helps us have an honest look at Christ who is kind of represented by the Father in our story. Here's what we learn about Jesus. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration, the renew of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ. Whom he poured out on us, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Salvation is based upon the grace of God, not upon the righteousness that you can perform. And unless we come to a place of recognizing that we are just like filthy rags, all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags, until we come to terms with our undeserving, unworthy nature, we'll never appreciate the forgiveness that is offered through Christ. The beauty of this goodness and loving kindness that pours out of our Savior. This morning, if you have never come to a place of confessing your sin. If you've never come to a place of of coming to an honest evaluation of who you are and and asking for God to forgive you of those sins, uh, of repenting from your sin, which which isn't just about um, recognizing the shame and the guilt of what you've done, but turning away from those things and turning to Christ. That is true repentance. 
in laying them down at his feet and trusting in the finished work of Christ who paid for your sin on the cross. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then enjoying the benefits of what Christ has offered through faith in him alone for salvation, not through works. And for those of us who've experienced this grace, to pray that God would help us to to have a, a humble heart and an honest evaluation so we don't look down our nose at those around us who are the dregs of society, but we come to a place like Jesus at seeking to, to seek and to save the lost and, and to go after those who are desperate for salvation and seek to draw them in to enjoy the same benefits of forgiveness that we've enjoyed. May God give us the zeal and the urgency to follow in the steps of Christ and share that truth of his loving kindness with others. Lord, thank you for this story. Thank you for this portrait of the rebel prodigal. And thank you this morning, Lord, for the fact that no matter how far we've gone, there is forgiveness that's waiting for us. As we come to an honest evaluation of ourselves and we come humbly before you, admitting our sin, and asking for forgiveness. Lord, may we see the continuing work of your Holy Spirit in our midst, in our families, in our communities, in our workplaces, in our schools, wherever we are. May we have the joy of seeing the power of the gospel at work and seeking to bring this joy to you in heaven as you rejoice over one sinner who repents. May that be our desire We pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great week.